morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, and if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1035. And as always, I'm going to begin in a word of prayer this morning, and then we'll consider the text together. So let's bow for prayer. Lord, we do thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together as a church family. We thank you for the rich uh, tradition of hymns that we have that we can sing to you. We thank you for the godly men who are able to come and to read your word, to pray on our behalf. Lord, we thank you for those who have been given musical talents and can lead us in our singing, who can play our instruments. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and the opportunity we have now to consider it in some detail. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to focus our attention upon your word now, that you would give us understanding into the meaning of this text, that you would apply it to our lives through your spirit. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so if you're new to Grace Baptist Church, you should know that we're in the midst of a series through the book of Revelation. We've been in this series for several months. We've still got several months to go. And if you're not familiar with Revelation itself, this is the last book of the Bible. And it's a book primarily taken up with prophecies about the future, especially those details relating to the return of Christ and the establishment of his earthly kingdom. The section that we're in now details events concerning the Great Tribulation. This is the final three-and-a-half-year period before that earthly kingdom of Christ is established. Now, by this point, the Church of Christ has been removed. The world has fallen into chaos. God is meeting out His judgments on the world of unbelief. Many people are being saved in this time, but most are being hardened in their unbelief. And as we learned last week, it is out of this milieu that a new leader will emerge on the world stage, one who will claim that he can bring order out of all of this chaos, one who claims that he will be able to protect the world from these cascading judgments. And the scriptures call him many different names. The name for which he is most famous is Antichrist. This is the Antichrist. Last week we learned that this man will be empowered by the devil himself and that with the devil's help he will establish a kingdom which extends over every continent of the globe. He will also be a very proud man. He will boast of his own greatness. He will present himself to the world as a Christ-like figure. And the world will rally around him as a savior. Well, now we're moving into today's text, which again is chapter 13, verses 11 to 18. In this text, the Apostle John introduces us to another end times figure. This one will be a religious character. And that's why in chapters 16, 19, and 20 of this book, he is called the false prophet. So we have the Antichrist and now the false prophet. Today's text teaches us about the character and the career of this coming false prophet. We're going to examine those details together today, and then we'll end with some applications for our lives in the present. So let's begin looking at verse 11 now. The Apostle John writes this. He writes, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, 
It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Now, he's describing here the rise of this false prophet. You notice he calls him another beast. The Antichrist was the first beast, false prophet, the second beast. These two will be kindred spirits. Okay? They will both be men of unreasoning violence. And John says this new beast will rise out of the earth. That means that like the Antichrist, much of his early career will be spent in obscurity, but finally he will seize his moment. He will rise to a place of international prominence, and he will take his place alongside of the Antichrist in this great kingdom. John also says that he will have horns like a lamb, but speech like a dragon. This means that the false prophet will be a paradoxical figure. There will be one side of him that's very gentle and kind, even religious, but there will be this other side of him that is vicious, even diabolical. And friends, this coming figure will complete the so-called unholy trinity of the apocalypse. You see, just as in God we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, so in this coming kingdom there will be the devil and the Antichrist and the false prophet. Three evil persons functioning as one, and together they will oversee the last of the world's godless empires." We see here in verses 12 through 17 that the false prophet along with the Antichrist will wield absolute power over their kingdom. Let's look at the first part of verse 12. We see they'll have governmental powers. Verse 12 says, It, that is the false prophet, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. Meaning that the false prophet will stand alongside of the Antichrist in wielding political powers in this coming kingdom. We also see here that he will wield religious powers. Look at the second part of verse 12. It says, And it makes the inhabitant, the earth and its inhabitants, worship the first beast, the one whose mortal wound was healed. And then down at the second part of verse 14, it says, And he will tell his subjects to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Okay, so again, this false prophet, he will be a kindred spirit with the Antichrist. Together with the Antichrist, he will have great political power over this international empire. But then we also see this unique contribution that he will make. He will have a religious role in that kingdom. He will try to encourage, to facilitate, and, and finally to coerce the worship of the Antichrist. He will even erect an image in the, in the Antichrist's honor, and he will compel people to pay homage to that image. Okay, just like King Nebuchadnezzar did in days of old. Just as practically every dictator has done over the course of world history. You know, when you have a sprawling empire, there are only a few ways that you can unite it together. One way is through a powerful, centralized government, and then a massive bureaucracy that touches all aspects of people's lives. That's one way to unify an empire. That'll certainly be a part of this coming kingdom. But then another way to unify it is to have a common religion. And this has happened time and time again in world history. It will occur once more in this coming kingdom of Antichrist. 
with the help of the false prophet. They will try to have a common religion, and it will all be directed at the Antichrist himself. His powers will be political. They will be religious. Then we also see verses 16 and 17, the false prophet's powers will be economic. Verse 16 says, Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. So, false prophet will be empowered to require a mark upon all of his kingdom's subjects. And this mark will have economic significance. Now, question, what is this mark? Well, friends, the word translated mark here is related to a verb that means to brand something, to brand something, like a a rancher who will brand his livestock or an ancient slave owner who would brand his slaves. This mark will be a sign of both ownership and loyalty. It'll show that the Antichrist owns this person. It is a subject of Antichrist. But then conversely, it'll show this person is loyal to Antichrist. In fact, chapters 14, 16, 19, and 20 of Revelation also say this mark will be associated with worship. To have the mark is to be a worshiper of Antichrist. You'll notice the location of the mark. It's placed on the right hand or the forehead of the subject. Okay, these are prominent parts of the body. Even when you are fully clothed, right, your hands and your face are uncovered. That's the significance of this. It will be a sign of one's public affirmation and public identification with the Antichrist. And if that is the case, friends, then it will also implicitly be a mark of one's repudiation of the true Christ in all that he stands for. To bear this mark in the kingdom of Antichrist is to to declare your loyalty to him and your rejection of the true Christ. And we see verse 16 here that no one will be exempted from the order to receive this mark. Verse 16 says it applies to all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave. And then verse 17, it will come with tremendous consequences. It says, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So you will have to, in some manner publicly identify yourself with Antichrist, publicly proclaim yourself to be his subject, publicly pay homage to Antichrist and all that he represents if you want to buy or sell or hold a job or engage in any marketplace activities. To refuse the mark, whatever this mark will be, is to refuse to participate in the economic life of this kingdom. That means that you will be on your own. You'll not be able to buy or sell. You'll not be able to offer goods or services in the marketplace. You will have to fend for yourself. That will not be an easy thing in these days. So, friends, this is what life will be like in that coming kingdom of Antichrist. 
To be a subject of that kingdom will be uh, to be a part of a massive international empire with a strong centralized government headed by a figure that we know as Antichrist, a great leader who will present himself as a Christ-like figure to all, but who will be the opposite of all that Christ represents. It'll be to belong to a kingdom in which politics and religion and economics are all integrated into one. To participate in any part of the empire, you'll have to affirm every part. To belong to this kingdom is to declare your absolute loyalty to the Antichrist. And if you do not, you can expect persecution. You can expect to be locked out of the economy. That's what life will be like in the kingdom of Antichrist. But now, how will Antichrist and his false prophet maintain this kind of power over their subjects? How will they do this? Well, of course, as we've already said, they will do so through coercion. There will be severe penalties if you do not go along with the program. But then in verses 13 to 15, we find there will also be deception at work. People will be deceived into following after the Antichrist and the false prophet. Look what these verses say with me. Verse 13, it, again, the false prophet, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. And then down in verse 15, And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak, and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So we see here the false prophet has the ability to perform great signs and wonders, what what 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 calls false signs and wonders. But the point is that they will be able to deceive many people by performing these seemingly supernatural feats. They'll be able to do things that ordinary men and women cannot do. It says he'll even have the power to make fire come down from heaven to earth. Now, that's a sign that's normally associated with true prophets of God. Do you remember the story of Elijah and his confrontation with the prophets of Baal? Scriptures tell us that back in ancient Israel, there was this contest. Elijah was a true prophet of God. Prophets of Baal were false prophets. To prove whose God was true and whose God was false, they set up this contest. They would erect altars. They would place their own animal sacrifices on the altars. Then each prophet would pray to his God, asking God to call fire down from heaven to consume the sacrifice. You remember how that story went. First, the prophets of Baal had their turn, and they prayed to their God, and then they cried to him, and then they screamed to him, and then they danced, and then they cut themselves, and they did everything they could to get their God's attention. But, of course, that God was a false God. He did not answer their prayers, and so the fire was not lit. Then Elijah had his turn. And he offered a simple, a humble prayer. He asked God to show all people that he is the true God. And what did God do? He answered that prayer. He sent fire from heaven and it consumed the sacrifice. You see, ordinarily, the ability to call fire from heaven would show you are a real prophet of God. 
But in this future time, this great tribulation, while the kingdom of Antichrist is on the, is on the earth, the false prophet will be able to do that sign. He will be able to do things that ordinarily would appear to be a sign of a true prophet of God. And then he'll take this, this image, this, this statue that's been erected in honor of Antichrist. He will animate the statue so that an inanimate object will be able to speak. So that it will even be able to take the lives of those who refuse to worship the Antichrist. Now, friends, all of this accords so well with Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 24, which says, quote, In those days, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So you see the Antichrist and the false prophet working together, their false signs and wonders, and doing these incredible feats, they will deceive the masses into believing that they are truly Christ-like beings, that truly they represent a, a supernatural power. It says, if possible, they will even deceive the elect. That means that even born-again believers at the time will struggle to know what to make of the false prophet. Is he from God? Is he not? It's so hard to tell. He appears to be a religious man. He has all these abilities. What do we make of this prophet? Even God's people will struggle in that day. So then, friends, how will God know, or excuse me, how will God's people know what to do? How will they know that this prophet is a false prophet? Well, let's look at verse 18 together now. John writes, this calls for wisdom. This calls for wisdom. You see, friends, with all the false prophet's authority and with all of his power and with all of his deceptive signs and wonders, there is only one way that God's people will be able to recognize that he is a false prophet, not true. And that Antichrist is God's enemy, not God's friend. It will be by exercising their powers of spiritual discernment. In other words, the only way they'll be able to tell the true from the false in this day is by taking all that they know about God and all that they know about the Scriptures and by skillfully applying that knowledge to the situation at hand, they'll be able to tell whether these men are true or false. And it is only by that means... Wisdom, wisdom will make the difference in whether they are deceived or whether they are able to recognize the truth. Now we come to the second part of verse 18. Here John provides a key piece of information that believers in that day will need to help them identify the Antichrist and false prophet for who they really are. Look what he says next. He says, let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666, or simply 
666. So the only way that God's people are going to be able to distinguish the true from the false in that day is by the use of spiritual discernment. And John now provides this crucial piece of information that they will need to make the proper discernment. The information he provides them with is the number of the beast. And his number is 666. Now, friends, as you can imagine, these words have generated a whole lot of discussion among God's people over the centuries. What precisely does this mean? Well, let me give you a couple of options here. First of all, some believe the answer is found in numerology. The numerology is when you assign a numerical value to every letter of the alphabet. And supposedly, you should just be able to take a man's name, and if the numerical value of his name adds up to 666, you should be able to find the Antichrist. Okay, that's, that's one theory. Of course, there are some problems with that theory. For example, which alphabet do you use? Greek, Hebrew, Latin, or a different language? Which do you use? Another problem, what numerical value do you assign to each letter? Does A equal 1, B equal 2, C equal 3? Or is it different? Does A equal 0, B equal 6, C equal 12? Or is it different still? See, how do we determine what language to use and how do we determine what numerical value to assign to each number, or excuse me, to each letter? You see, I think there are too many problems associated with numerology for that to be the correct answer. How could any of this help somebody spiritually discern the false prophet or the antichrist. Well, then there's a second option. Others believe we should just take the whole thing figuratively. Here's what they mean by that. Scriptures indicate that the number seven is the number of perfection, right? It it appears all over the scriptures. Number seven is the number of perfection. It's the number that God employs of himself all the time. Well, then we look at the antichrist number. It is 666. Falls short of the number seven. Not just one time, but three times. The idea here is the Antichrist will simply be a man who is the the consummate evil man. He falls short of God's glory three times over. And so all that God's people will have to do in that day is find who is the ultimate embodiment of evil. That must be the Antichrist. I suppose that's possible, but to me it's, it's still difficult to see how that interpretation could, could help anyone ultimately. Don't we all fall short of God's glory? And haven't there been world rulers time and time again who have been falsely identified as Antichrist based on this method of testing? Everyone from the Emperor Nero to Adolf Hitler to the Pope in Rome, they've all been identified using this method. So I don't think that's going to be it either. So then what is the correct answer here? Well, I believe we're best left with this answer. Friends, I think the words here are difficult for us to interpret because God intends for this matter to be shrouded in mystery until the time of fulfillment. See, friends, the reason why it's so difficult to know what to do with the last part of verse 18 is precisely because Antichrist has not yet come. This has not yet been fulfilled. 
And so it's very difficult to figure out how to use this information to identify him. But friends, when he does come, I believe the answer will be obvious so that anyone with spiritual wisdom will be able to use this to clearly identify who he is. In that sense, I think it'll be just as it was with the Old Testament prophets. You know, in the Old Testament scriptures, there are all kinds of prophecies related to Christ. That he would live, die, rise again, that one day he would rule and reign over a great kingdom. All kinds of these prophecies. But you know, there was a lot of of mystery surrounding Christ as well. They still didn't know precisely who he was. That's why 1 Peter chapter 1 says the prophets searched intently into the scriptures trying to figure out the times and the circumstances in which the Messiah would come. You see, none of those Old Testament prophecies became clear to God's people until Christ finally came. And after he came, God's people were able to look at those prophecies with fresh eyes and then look at Jesus of Nazareth and say, look at this, Jesus of Nazareth perfectly fulfills everything these Old Testament scriptures said about him. Every detail is right. And that's how they identified Jesus of Nazareth as the promised Messiah. It was spiritual discernment. Friends, I believe it'll be the same in the future with the Antichrist. We have our prophecies about him. We know some things about his his rise to power, his career, what he will be like, what he will do. We have a way to identify him. We have the number of his name. And yet, because he's not yet here, there's a lot of mystery surrounding all of this. Friends, it'll be different when Antichrist finally comes. The generation that sees him, that lives with him, they will be able to look at him and then look at the prophecies about him in scriptures. They'll be able to look at the end of Revelation 13, 18, and they will know how that applies to the man. And they will be able to identify Antichrist without difficulty. It will take spiritual discernment, but it will be possible. Well, friends, that takes us to the conclusion of our passage today, but I hope you can see here that there is a principle taught that is applicable to all believers in all ages. There's a principle here, and we've got to get this one down. Here it is. Evil is deceptive. Therefore, we must become wise. Evil is deceptive. Therefore, we must become wise. This is the principle to draw from today's text. Let's start with the first part of that. Evil is deceptive. And by that I mean that evil people rarely offer themselves to the world as evil people. They don't come onto the scene wearing horns and holding a pitchfork, dressed in a red cape with a banner over their head saying, I'm a terrible person, avoid me at all costs. That's not the way it works. Evil people are self-deceived. They don't think they're evil themselves. They think they're good. They think their plan is a good plan. They present themselves as good to the rest of the world. Evil people will offer themselves wearing nice attire, with good educational pedigrees, with nice families and charismatic personalities. They might even be very religious. They might claim to have a special relationship with God. They might even be able to perform signs and wonders. They might even claim to have a plan that will be for the benefit of all if they can only implement it. Isn't that the way that it worked in Germany in the 20th century? People did not look at Adolf Hitler as an evil man. At least the masses did not. 
They said, hey, here's a man with a plan. Our nation is in turmoil. We're impoverished. We're, we're, we're vulnerable. Here's a man who loves Germany, and he's got a plan to pull us out of our melees. Let's trust him. You see, no one presents themselves to the world as evil. It'll be the same in that day. Evil will seem good to many. Therefore, my friends, we must become wise. Or to quote 1 John 4, verse 1, we must learn how to test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now, how do we develop our powers of spiritual discernment? How do we learn to look past that outer facade and to see down into the true nature of a thing or to see a person for who he really is? Well, friends, of course, you know that bank tellers learn to spot counterfeits by mastering what the original looks like. I think that's where it needs to begin with us, too. Friends, I think if we would be spiritually wise, we must first learn to master the truth. We must master the truth. That means we must first master the scriptures. And that takes a whole lot more than just reading through the scriptures a couple of times through. No, we cannot say that we have mastered the scriptures until we understand the entire storyline of the Bible, start to finish. We haven't mastered the scriptures until we've practically memorized it from Genesis to Revelation, to know the figures, to know the stories, to know the events, to know the ideas, to know their consequences, every last bit of it. You say, Pastor, that's impossible. I'll never be a master of scripture. Well, that's the point. We always have to be studying it getting better and better all the time. If we want to be able to recognize the counterfeit, we must know the truth. That means studying the scriptures. But then more than that, we must also understand how the doctrines of the Bible fit together. So we must become masters of biblical doctrine. How do we do this? Well, by listening to doctrinal sermons, by studying the ancient creeds and confessions of the church, by going through doctrinal series as part of our educational time as a church family, by studying the great works of church history and learning from their spiritual wisdom. We must master the content of the Bible, but then we must understand how it all integrates into one coherent worldview. Masters of doctrine. And then, friends, we must also become knowledgeable in the history of ideas. We must know the story of humanity well and what ideas have been proposed in the past, what happened when those, imp- those ideas were implemented. Were there good outcomes or bad outcomes? By studying history, we can gain wisdom for the present. Friends, we also need to build up our own reasoning powers so that we can see how biblical doctrine and historical precedent apply to the challenges of the present day. So that when something seemingly new arises within our memory, it can spark something. Oh, that isn't new. The names, the faces are new, but the idea is old. I remember it. 700 years ago it was proposed. Or 70 years ago it was proposed. And here's what happened when it was implemented. We must be able to use our historical knowledge and our reasoning powers. Beyond all of that, we must cultivate our religious affections. See, it's not enough just to know the Scripture, to know sound doctrine, to know history. There's also got to be a spiritual zeal for the things of God. We've got to have a a desire to perpetuate the truth 
not to fall into deception. We've got to cultivate those affections. How? Well, we do that by prayer, by reading good devotional works, by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We do it by regularly gathering with our church family and and enjoying fellowship with other believers. We do this by engaging in public worship. It's by all of these means that we will learn to master the truth and be zealous enough for the truth that we will care whether we embrace it or whether we embrace the false. But then there is the other side. We must also become familiar with the world's vain philosophies. We must understand the ideas propounded by the world and we must see how they fall short of scriptural wisdom so that we will know to mark them and avoid them and resist them in our own lives, in our families, in our local churches, and should God give us the influence to do so in society at large. Friend, the answer to evil in every age is for believers to gain spiritual wisdom, that they might recognize the false and the untrue when they see it, that they might be able to resist its pull in their own lives and then be a public voice for the truth in society. This is the answer in every age. My friends, evil is deceptive. We must become wise. Will you engage in that pursuit with me, even this week? Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us. We thank you for the information you provide us about this coming false prophet and how much of his power will be consolidated Through the use of deception, Lord, help us to learn how to see deception, to recognize it so that we can resist it. In our own day, Lord, help us to become people of truth, people who love the truth, people who long to perpetuate the truth to future generations. Lord, help us to to stand in our day and then help those believers in a future generation to stand as well. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.